want to pray one more time uh, for our study and we'll get into 1 Samuel tonight. Father, thank you again for your word that you give to us. It is meat for us, Father, in that it is the protein of our lives. Strengthens us. Father, builds us up. Makes us strong. It's the milk that we need, Lord. Going to the very structure of our of our bones as, as your word says you, the word is capable of dividing even bone and marrow and so it's healthy for us and, and for those who, who can't take in meat maybe, maybe it's just too much it is, it is gentle like milk on us and, and Father it's also honey and sweet to the taste and I love Lord how your word speaks to us wherever we are to the child who is needing milk to the, to the man who, who feels he needs meat to the woman who is looking for that sweetness to, for the honey to all of us Father in the different places that we are in our lives your word speaks to us and I have seen it time and time again I praise you for it praise you for the wonder and the magnificence of this, of this book that is so much more than a book of this library that's far beyond any library I've ever visited so tonight Holy Spirit we ask that through your word you will speak and teach and lead us Touch our hearts, Lord, and take us deeper in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of First Samuel, I was telling a few people before we began, this one snuck up on me. Ruth was so short. And I, I normally give myself, uh, you get about three-fourths of the way into a study, and I begin reading ahead and thinking ahead and planning ahead and studying ahead. Well, three-fourths into Ruth, we're in the third chapter, and there's only one chapter left. And then I went on vacation and came back, and we talked to Ruth one more time, and boom, we're here, First Samuel. So I was freaking out on Sunday afternoon going, <laughs> I don't even know what this is about. So I went back, and I've spent some time in study, and I am so excited to share what's going on in this book with you. Even tonight, there, there's so many just wonderful things. I, I had to go home and cut down my notes because there were far too many. We would have been here about three hours. I know that's okay with Spencer, not with everybody else. <laughs> So I had to kind of cut back. I'll give you more next week and, and we'll, we'll allow some time to get into this. But I do want to give you some introduction tonight to the book of First and Second Samuel, both of them together. And then uh, we're going to look at chapter 1. And the other thing I was going to do, I'll save for another time. Samuel. Samuel is a fixture in Jewish history as one of their truly great prophets. A great man. He was, by the way, the last of the judges. We went through the book of Judges before we got to Ruth. You may recall Ruth happened, her story happened in the time of the judges, probably right around the time of Gideon. Because there was famine in the land, and we know that happened around the time of Gideon. So her story happened, and so we really haven't left the season of the judges yet. We come into 1 Samuel, we covered 13 judges, and we come into 1 Samuel and we discover there are two more. Eli is considered one of the judges. We'll see this in the first couple of chapters. Eli judged Israel for 40 years. Then Samuel comes along. And he is truly the last of the judges. So he would be judge number 15. He judged Israel for 40 years. And then there's a shift. A very subtle shift that we will see and talk about in just a moment here. Samuel was one of the judges. But unlike a lot of the other judges who were deliverers, you know, Samson, who delivered the people from the Philistines, or Gideon, who, who fought the Midianites, or Deborah, who, who, who led in, in battle with her helper over there um, at Mount... What is the mountain? Some of you know that, that Deborah fought on? 
Tabor. Tabor. That's it. Mount Tabor. That little camel hump of a mountain in Israel. That's right. Mount Tabor. And, and, and these were all great heroes, great deliverers. Samuel wasn't that kind of judge. He was much more a spiritual deliverer. Samuel was used by God in prophetic, powerful ways to deliver the people into a new place of closeness with the Lord. So very much a judge, but much more on the spiritual side than really any of the judges before him who had feats of strength and wonder. They were superheroes. Samuel, Samuel's the prophet. Samuel is the judge who delivered spiritually. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 32 lists Samuel among some of those great judges of Israel, listing him out in the great hall of faith, the hall of the faithful. Names chosen by the Holy Spirit, speaking through the writer of the book of Hebrews, to draw out and say, look at these people, look at what they did. These are people who showed great faith in their lives. And Samuel's one of them, Hebrews 11.32 tells us, but it also refers to him particularly as a prophet. Again, signifying a shift in the way God is going to now relate to his people. He related in a different way before. Yes, Moses was a prophet. Yes, Joshua had prophetic words. Yes, there were others who who brought messages from the Lord. But it's different now. Something is changing in God's economy in the way he's dealing with Israel. You'll see this. But 1 and 2 Samuel don't bear the prophet's name because he was the sole author of these two books. That's typical, typically the deal. If the name is there, probably they're, they're the author. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we assume were the authors of those four Gospels and on in the Scriptures. Ruth, we know she didn't write Ruth, but it was so much about her. And that's kind of why First and Second Samuel ended up getting named the books of Samuel. It wasn't originally that way. In fact, in the Latin Vulgate, I know you're all excited to know what's the Latin Vulgate, not going to get into that tonight, but in that translation, it was, it was actually the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Kings, the four books of the kings. It wasn't until the Septuagint, about the 2nd century before Christ, the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. The Septuagint was when suddenly the, the translators at that time said, let's call it 1st and 2nd Samuel. Now again, it's not because he was the sole author, but because he was a significant personality, especially in the beginning pages of this book. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 25 does, however, tell us, Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in the book and placed it before the Lord. So there's some authorship there. He wrote them in the book, the ordinances of the Lord, what the Lord was doing. He wrote this stuff down, put it in a book, placed it before the Lord. Is that First and Second Samuel? We're not really sure. There is a problem with his authorship. And again, by way of introduction, you need to understand this. 1 Samuel 25, verse 1, this is 1 Samuel 25, verse 1, says, Then Samuel died. So if he died at the end of 1 Samuel, how did he write 2 Samuel? I mean, unless he wrote it posthumously, or maybe he was a ghostwriter. I don't know. He did. How could he write a book after he had already passed away? Well, First Chronicles 29.29, you make note of this, tells us the following. Now, the acts of King David from first to last are written in the Chronicles of Samuel the seer, in the Chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the Chronicles of Gad the seer. So the Bible indicates to us, we can't say absolutely, but the Bible indicates to us at least Samuel, Nathan, and Gad wrote likely what we have in first, second, first and Second Samuel and on into the Kings. It was probably at least those three. There may have been some of the other prophets who contributed to this. 
So we can reasonably assume, again, these three guys, Samuel, Nathan, and Gad, penned most, if not all, these books. But don't forget this important fact when studying the Bible. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You might say, well, yeah, Rick, but the Muslims say that about the Koran. All religious bodies have their religious works, and they all say, well, yeah, it was inspired by God. How do you know... Which books of the Bible and who chose which books? And and this is a can of worms that can take us weeks to to sort through. But let me at least say this much, and I've shared this before. There is internal evidence biblically that is amazing. It's astounding. And you know, as you read through, the interconnectedness of the Word of God is astounding. And I believe bears itself out, proves itself to be the Word of God. You see in this internal evidence... You see writers of the scriptures referring back to others, calling others and giving credibility to others. I've mentioned Daniel is one that has been highly criticized by theologians and the the, the higher critics, so-called. Book of Daniel can't possibly have been written by the Daniel who lived back in in Nebuchadnezzar's day. It couldn't have possibly been written by him. Why not? Because his prophecies all came true. Oh, okay. That's a... Lame point. And that's not, you know, his prophecies came true. Well, Jesus refers back to Daniel the prophet and refers to the writings of Daniel the prophet. So, right there, you've got internal evidence where you say, okay, Jesus believed Daniel was the prophet and Jesus believed Daniel wrote the book of Daniel and Jesus believed the book of Daniel was legitimate. He even quotes specifically from the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 27. So, there's internal evidence to the scriptures, there's external evidence to the scriptures as well. Passed along down the line. Held true to the original writing. Thanks to things like the the Dead Sea Scrolls, among other discoveries, we can compare what was written before Christ, what we have after Christ, and see how accurate it truly is. So without getting into it any further, and if you, if you have questions about that, please talk to me. We can, we can delve into this. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, support for what I'm saying here. But Paul again says, all scripture is God-breathed. He is the author. Regardless of who penned the words onto the papyrus, God is the author. Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.20, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of the prophet's own interpretation. It says of one's own interpretation, but he's referring to the prophets. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by God, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So we can know this. Samuel, Nathan, Gad, they did have a ghost writer. The Holy Ghost writer. The Holy Spirit inspired and gave the words that we have before us and we can study. And again, it rings true. It rings true. Watch it, you'll see. Every person who put the pen to the page of Scripture was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So inspired, by the way, are these two books, First and Second Samuel. They have been called, quote, a masterpiece of historical writing. Davis and Whitcomb write the following. They say they represent the maximum achievement in the area of ancient historiography. These books present us with a gallery of historical portraits that are incomparable. Nowhere else in ancient Near Eastern literature do we have such personal profiles as those contained in the books of Samuel. You're going to get to know these people. We got to see the acts of the judges, but we really didn't get to know very many of them, did we? 
We saw the song of Deborah. We, we heard a little bit of, of Gideon's you know, relationship with God. But for the most part, even Samson, we, don't get, we, we get the feats of strength. As Michelle played Samson so beautifully and so powerfully on Sunday morning recently, you know. Yeah, the feats of strength. I mean, that's all we really see. We don't know his heart. We don't know what's, what's making him tick, what's in his mind. You're going to see that in the characters, the people who are shown historically in First and Second Samuel. It's wonderful. You will feel as though you know these people. David, by the time we get done studying David's life, you're going to say, wow, I spent months walking with David and it was so cool. I understand now what he meant when he wrote what he wrote in the Psalms. I remember, now when I read the 23rd Psalm, I, I was with David there on the hillside as a shepherd boy, looking up at the sky and writing, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I get it, I see these things. It's a wonderful, wonderful couple of books. Now as we get introduced to the next section of Scripture, you may want to jot down three major themes that we're going to see in First and Second Samuel. These are three things that really stand out in these books, in these writings. And the first one is the rise of the kingdom. The rise of the kingdom. Now I want you to think back. From the book of Exodus forward, we have seen Israel under a theocratic arrangement with the Lord. Now, now a little, little side note. This is what I was going to spend some time talking about tonight that I'm not going to, but I'm going to just for a second. <laughs> I've been looking into a thing called dispensationalism lately. Uh, reading some books about it because what's interesting is I, I found that, that my understanding of scripture kind of tends to fall in line with what's called dispensationalism now I want to be careful with this because I want you to understand that I don't ever want to be called a dispensationalist any more than I want to be called a pre-tribulationalist or a premillennialist. well aren't you pre-trib and pre-millennial well yeah that's, that's what but, I, but I'm a Christian that's what I want to be called that's the moniker that I wear is Christian more than any other but with that in mind, looking into dispensationalism, it's a big theological word. All it really talks about is different ages, dispensations, arrangements that God had with man, and ways that God revealed himself to man across time. And there are unique and various ways that he did that. In fact, Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 3. We won't go there now, but you can make a note of that. He talks about the administrations, various administrations. The King James actually translates that, various dispensations. Time periods. In the way that God revealed himself to man. There are several different ones that, that people can see in the scripture, and, and you can see these as well, but up to the time of the Exodus, God revealed himself to people in different ways. There's pre-fall, the arrangement that he had with Adam and Eve in the garden. And there's after the fall. And then there's after the flood, the way he arranged kind of his relationship with the people following Noah. You get all the way up through Abraham and continue on down the line, and you get to the Exodus and something changes. For now, God is not dealing with people of Israel as individuals. He's dealing with a people. The people of Israel. We read on through Exodus and we see Israel under a theocratic arrangement. Theocratic. We're going to see a subtle shift here as we get into 1 Samuel from theocracy to monarchy. From a dealing with Israel as a people to a dealing with Israel as a nation. And God is going to shift things a little bit. A theocracy is government by divine authority. Divine guidance. They have the priesthood. And if the people wanted to know what God wanted, what their sole authority, who was the Lord himself, if they wanted to know what God wanted for them, they went through the priests. Well now, moving from theocracy to monarchy, they now have a king. So how do they relate to God? Instead of priests, God begins to send prophets. 
He begins to send messages to the people. All the while trying to draw them back. Because you need to understand the rise of this first kingdom in Israel is not necessarily a good thing. It is emblematic. It is a picture of a later kingdom that will rise that will be a good thing. But Israel doesn't get better simply because they get kings. And those of you who have looked at the lives of the kings understand this. In fact, it just seems to go from bad to worse. As you study through kings, when we get to that, those couple of books, every king you look at, you're going to hope is better than the last, and you're going to find out it's probably not. It's probably worse than the last. And even the ones that seem to be good for a minute quickly spiral down and end up not being so good at all. But in this monarchical arrangement, things change. Things change from the people of Israel to the kingdom of Israel. And Samuel, his name is applied to these books, partially as an author, partially because he's a great prophet, also because he had such a huge impact on the lives of Israel's first two kings, Saul, king number one, and David, king number two. Samuel becomes kind of the behind the scenes guy once these two kings are are brought into office. But he is still a very powerful force and figure and one through whom the the Lord uses and works very powerfully. Samuel saw the rise of the kingdom. Now flip over in 1 Samuel to chapter 8 for a moment. 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I want to just give you a, a little preview of how this happened. Why did this go from theocracy to monarchy? Wasn't the Lord you know, capable of, of ruling His people? Of course He was. The problem is not with the Lord. The problem is not with the arrangement. The problem is not with the form. It's with the family. In fact, the problem is never with the plan of God. It's with the people of God. His plans are perfect. His plans always are exactly what we need. We just don't follow through so well. The problem is not with the form of government, it's with the people themselves. And we see this, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4, says, The elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. Ramah, by the way, which we'll see in verse 1. Ramah is Ramallah today. It was Yasser Arafat's headquarters. It's now the headquarters of the Palestinian Authority. Same place. So they gathered together there and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, we've grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us. Like all the nations. That should just send a chill through your spiritual bones. Anytime we say, boy, we want to be like the nations. We want to be like the world. We want our relationship and our activities to be like theirs. And it broke Samuel's heart. Verse 6 says, The thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord which is always the right thing to do. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, and this is heartbreaking, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Can I just share a little side note as far as ministering to one another is concerned? If someone rejects your ministry, they're not rejecting you, but they're rejecting the Lord who sent you. Sometimes we go to minister to someone and we're so hurt by their reaction. We just don't want to do it anymore. And the Lord says, hey, hey, it's okay. It's not you they're angry with. It's not you they have a problem with. It's me. My shoulders are broad and I can handle it. You just keep compassionately loving people. You keep going out. You keep caring. You keep sharing. I had an email from from one of our our sisters here who has now since moved away. and, And she just was saying, I went to talk to a friend about Jesus and she is so angry with me right now. What do I do? The first thing is recognize the anger is not at you. 
It is unfortunately, but truly, it is toward the Lord. But his shoulders are broad. Verse 8, he says, Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they're doing to you also. Samuel, so you're in good company. (laughs) Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. And God will go on in that chapter to talk about what what having a king is going to be like. It's going to tax you. He's going to place heavy burdens on you. He's going to make life miserable for you. But you can have a king if that's what you want. The Lord often gives us what we want so that we can learn what we need. He's so good about that. But we see the rise of the kingdom. And the good news is that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we will come across the next great unconditional covenant of God with the people of Israel, one that is not dependent on their behavior. It's the Davidic covenant. The covenant with God, that God makes with David where he promises a descendant of David will literally rule and reign over all the world from David's throne in Jerusalem. And you know who that is. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 says a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Oh, praise the Lord. I look forward to to seeing a government that rests on his shoulders, not the shoulders of the Democrats or the Republicans. (laughs) It tells us that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, no end, which tells us that this government has not yet seen the light of day. There will be no end to his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, righteousness from then on and forevermore and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And I like that last line because what it's telling us is God is going to do it. His zeal, his power, his enthusiasm will bring about this kingdom. And if we haven't seen the kingdom yet, it's only because God has not done it yet, not because he's incapable of doing it. His zeal will accomplish this. This kingdom concept is incredibly important both to Jews and to Christians, both in the Hebrew Scriptures and in the New Testament. In fact, the very first thing out of the mouth of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2 is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I'll say this about John the Baptist. Remember, he was a Jewish prophet. John the Baptist was not a Christian prophet. He was the last prophet of the Jewish people. And he spoke directly to the Jewish people. Remember when Jesus came, he said at first, he said, I've come to to the Jews, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's my first concern here. Gentiles are going to be added in later, but, but my first concern is to try and bring this message, this final opportunity to the house of Israel. And so like John the Baptist, he said, Repent, the kingdom is at hand. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we see the rise of the kingdom of Israel and the writings of Samuel and Nathan and Gad and possibly others, there is a foreshadowing, a wonderful foreshadowing of the last dispensation in history, the millennial kingdom. The kingdom with the perfect rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 20 verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. What does that mean, Rick? Pick up the Revelation series and you'll learn. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. 
And in the Revelation series we talk about this six times in Revelation chapter 20. We're told that we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ for a thousand years on earth, literally. The millennial kingdom. The kingdom of Israel at the beginning is just a foreshadowing of the kingdom to come that will be one of perfect righteousness under the great and grand authority of Jesus Christ. And if you refuse to go on an Israel trip before then, you're going to go then. So I'm not worried about it. (laughs) So he is the king. Uh, J. Vernon McGee writes the following, that in Samuel we we observe three things that our, our world needs. A king with power who exercises that power in righteousness. A king who will rule in the full dependence of God. And a king who will rule in full obedience to God. The Lord Jesus Christ, the coming king of kings, is the one this world so desperately needs. And he is the one we individually, personally, so desperately need to listen to, to bow the knee to, and to obey in our individual lives. So we'll see the rise of the kingdom. Number two, we're going to see the rise of the prophets. The rise of the prophets. Again, when Israel was a theocracy, the Lord spoke through the priesthood. Remember the, the Urim and the Thummim, what we call the Uma Thurman, that, that, that went there in the breastpiece of the high priest. It may have been, it was connected to, it may have been the actual breastpiece, the stones on it. We're not sure exactly how it works. We only know that the, the Urim and the Thummim meant the lights and the perfections. And somehow through this implementation, God gave answer to the request of the people. They go to the priest and say, and give their sacrifice and say, I have this, this concern, this need, I'm not sure how to, how to proceed. And, and the priest would pray, and apparently something with the Urim and the Thummim, God would bring answer through the priest back to the people. Not anymore. The theocracy is over. People want a king. And so they're going to have to deal with life under a king. So God still, because he always finds a way in spite of our goofiness, God still gets his message to his people. The priest will still be there. The priesthood will still be in effect. But now the prophets are the mouthpiece of God. Now God's going to begin sending them one after another. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, and in many portions, and in many ways, and some of those ways are very odd, says in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now again, for Israel, this actually is a signal of deterioration rather than restoration for the prophets who were often seen as outsiders. They were often seen as guys who stirred the pot. They were ridiculed. They were stoned and they were even killed to the point that Jesus in Matthew 23, 37 would say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. You see, the people stopped going to the priests often because they were corrupt, like Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli. You'll meet them as we get into 1 Samuel. Corrupt boys who were not the kind of priests you would want to trust. They were like the televangelists of our day. You look at them and go, why should I believe that? Look at how they live their lives. Look at what they're doing. Corruption was, was throughout the priesthood. Simply, some of the people saw the priests as distant. I've got to go all the way to Shiloh. I've got to go to the tabernacle. And then I've got to talk to these priests. And then these guys are out here and I'm back here. And we're just so different. I can't really go to that person. And so the Lord sent the prophets. And the people eventually will reject them. The rise of the kingdom, the rise of the prophets. And finally, number three, the third major thing you're going to see coming up again and again in First and Second Samuel is the raising up of prayer. The raising up of prayer. 
people seem to pray in these couple of books more than, than they did before. Although they did pray before, but this is a, a major thing that Samuel points out. The prayers of David are amazing. When was the last time you prayed that God would break the teeth of your enemies? That's one of my favorites. <laughs> David was so real with God in his interaction, in the way he prayed. He prayed his heart out, and that's why I believe he was called a man after God's own heart. Because David broke through in a way people really hadn't before. And just being real with his father. We're going to see that. The raising of prayer. And as a matter of fact, 1 Samuel opens with prayer, and 2 Samuel closes with prayer. We saw the bookends of God's work in the book of Ruth. The Lord beginning things off and visiting His people in Ruth. And then the Lord visiting Ruth and giving her a child at the end of Ruth. Well, the bookends in First and Second Samuel are prayer. With those things in mind, let's head into this first chapter because prayer is where our story begins tonight as we turn to First Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. And we meet a woman that is my daughter's namesake, a woman named Hannah. Now there was a certain man from Ramaphan Zophim. I want you all to remember that. You'll be quizzed on it later. <laughs> Ramaphan Zophim from the hill country of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, the son of or an Ephraimite. Now he had two wives. And the name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children... But Hannah had no children. Well, quickly, if you're taking notes of this, Elkanah means God has created. God has created. You're going to see, Elkanah, a, he's a pretty spiritual man. Yeah, but Rick, he's a polygamist. I know. I know. God knows. By the way, this isn't justification for polygamy. There are often times throughout the Old Testament scriptures, New Testament as well, where we're just told this is the way things were. It's not the way things God wanted them to be, but this is history. This is the, these are the choices people were making. And God chose to begin working with His people where they were and nurturing them. And what's interesting is in the history of Israel, you begin to see things like polygamy drop off. Because bit by bit, God is getting His people into the place that they need to be. Expressing Himself to them, helping them to see, boy, that's just not, that's not a good idea, polygamy. It's not a real healthy thing that we see going on. And matter of fact, in this very story, things are not happy in the lodge of Elkanah, God has created is his name. Penina, her name means jewel. Okay, jewel, although she's anything but a jewel. She's pretty rough around the edges. And then there's Hannah, whose name literally means grace. I really like that. Grace. But things again are not happy in the lodge of Elkanah. Maybe three things about Hannah's life as we go through this. Number one, Hannah's problem. Hannah's got a problem. Verse 3 tells us, well, verse 2 already told us, Hannah and Penina were the wives of this man, but Penina had children and Hannah had none. You need to understand it's a different thing even than we experience today. For a woman not to have children in that culture was for a woman not to be able to, to give her husband what he needed. It was for her not to be able to do the one thing that really, at least in the culture, had, had the women believe, man, this is, this is the thing I can do. This is, the, this, is, this is the gift I give my husband. And when a woman was barren, like Sarah, when a woman was barren, like Rachel, when a woman was barren, like Hannah, there was a sense of a loss of worth. 
It wasn't just, I want to have a child, I wish I could have a child. It's, there's something wrong with me because I can't have a child. And this is how Hannah felt. And I know that there are some of you who have felt that way. Please understand, God is doing something in you in the same way He is in Hannah, as we'll see. Hannah means grace again. Penina means jewel. Verses uh, 3 through 5 going on. It says, Now this young man, or this man, will go up from his city yearly, verse 3, to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. So we know he, he was a spiritual man. He, he was keeping law. He was getting to the tabernacle. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. You're going to find out how evil Hophni and Phinehas are, which goes to tell you that you can even go to the house of the Lord and there can be sin there. I hate to tell you that. Verse 4, When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters, but to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Now this is interesting. Look at the dynamic here, family-wise. Penina is able to give all kinds of kids to her husband. And he loves her and he gives her of the portion coming back from the sacrifice. Hannah can't do a thing for her husband, but he loves her. And I think that's a beautiful example of a husband and a wife. You don't have to do something for me, sweetheart, for me to love you. You don't have to prove yourself or provide something. I love you because I have chosen to love you. Hannah is struggling here because she, in her own sense of worth, I can't have children. I can't provide a son for my husband. And her husband loves her. Clearly, it doesn't make any difference to him. He still has a great love for Hannah. But of course you can guess there's a problem here that begins to rise. Penina, the one who's able to you know, pop out children right and left, is not... Is not loved like Hannah is. Verse 6 says, Her rival, this is Penina, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Penina, what a jewel. She's provoking Hannah on the way to Shiloh, on the way to worship. This mean-spirited, hard-hearted woman is making life hard on Hannah. You can't have children like I can, O barren one. Making fun of her, making it difficult for her. And you read this and think, man, isn't that typical? That the rival attacks us on the way to worship. How often does that happen to you? It's the end of the afternoon on a Wednesday. You've planned all day. You've planned all week. I'm going to go worship tonight. I'm going to go spend time in prayer. I'm going to be in the Word tonight. And man, the day just gets harder and harder and harder. And by about 6 o'clock, you're going, it'd be a lot easier if I just stayed home. Let me tell you something. The reason why it gets so hard is because Satan, I believe, knows there's some way that you're going to be blessed immeasurably that night. And he wants you to miss it. So the rival attacks on the way to worship. The times when it's most difficult to get here are the times when you're about to be the most blessed. So don't listen to him. Don't listen to the rival. Penina mocks and provokes Hannah on the way to worship. Our adversary does the same thing Sunday morning. That's the time when the adversary loves to create family squabbles and problems. We joke about it as Christians. Don't we? The whole thing about being in the car all the way to church. I wasn't up here driving, I'd be hitting you. And you open the door, hey, brother. Yeah, bless you, sister. Smile, kids. Hey. 
And then, of course, and invariably one of the children go to Sunday school and sit down and their innocence, you know, a little five-year-old says, yeah, we fought all the way to church. It's a lot, son. But it's so typical. Man, if, if, I, if I can get in there, Satan would say, if I can sidetrack them from worship, if I can stir them up to anger instead of praise, I've had a minor victory that day. Don't let them do it. Don't let them do it. Verse 8 tells us, Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than, than ten sons? <laughs> He's making it about himself and it's not about him. Husbands, we do that sometimes. In fact, i got to say this. Wives, your husbands know more than they let on. See, Cosby says we are dumb but not so dumb. And it's true. We do know more than we let on. What, what, what are you so mad about? You know? She's folding the laundry and putting away the dishes and caring for the kids and you're watching the news. What? What are you so angry? Just sitting here. Minding my own business. We know. We know what's upsetting. Alcana knows what the problem is. He's seeing this go on. And so his response is he makes it about himself. Aren't I good enough for you, sweetie? I don't need you to give me children. Look, it's you and me. Aren't I enough for you? And, and he's, he's, he's kind of missing it. So husbands, we've got to learn not to play dumb. And I'm talking to myself. I mean, my wife's sitting here, so I'm you know, really talking to myself. We know we need to learn what it means to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And getting ourselves up for our wives may be something as simple as just getting off our rear ends and going and doing something that they're doing. So that they can sit down and, I don't know, watch Hallmark Channel or whatever it is they do. (laughs) But listen to me on this, and this is important. Huge, huge piece of marital advice. Though the husband knows the problem, the husband cannot solve the problem. And that's the way it is with this gang. Though the wife may know the problem in the relationship, she cannot solve it. There is only one who can solve this problem that Hannah has. Only one who has the power, the ability to reach into her life and to solve the problem. And one of our greatest marital issues is in looking to our spouse to solve the problem of our spiritual barrenness. Instead of looking to the Lord to fill us. And I promise you this, if you seek your satisfaction, your fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will love your spouse more and enjoy them more. But if you are trying to seek your fulfillment, your satisfaction in your spouse, they're going to start to bug you. Because they cannot fulfill you the way the Lord can. And outside of the marital context, for those of you who are single... It is the same thing. If you try to seek your satisfaction, your fulfillment in anything else, you will end up feeling barren. But if you seek your fulfillment and your satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ, He is capable of filling you. Only the Lord can. And Hannah knows this. Hannah's got a problem, but Hannah begins to pray. Number two, Hannah's prayer. Verse 9. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking. So she did listen to her husband. She had a little something to eat and drink. She rose in Shiloh. And now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. (laughs) You'll find out later there's a reason why Eli's sitting down. He's a rather large man. So he's sitting there. And it says that, verse 10, She, greatly distressed, prayed 
to the Lord and wept bitterly. That phrase greatly distressed. Some of your Bible margins say, she being bitter of soul. There's a vast emptiness in the heart of Hannah. She is weeping and hurting. And by the way, she had been up to Shiloh, we're already told, year after year after year, she's going up. And year after year after year, Penina is mocking her and provoking her. And year after year after year, Hannah is praying, God, please, would you fill me with a child? Would you give me a son, please? Year after year after year, silence. There's no response. Well, this time, verse 11, she made a vow. And she said, Oh, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and do not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. I'll give him to you as a Nazarite. Remember we studied a Nazarite before. Someone whose life is given over to God. And in Israel, you could be a Nazarite for a season. You could say, I'm going to make a commitment to the Lord for for the next six months. I'm not going to cut my hair. I'm not going to eat raisins. I'm I'm not going to touch dead things. I'll be a Nazarite to the Lord. and focus my entire soul and, and life and body on the Lord for the next six months. Paul, I think, made that vow. It was told in the book of Acts that at one point he had to get his hair cut because he had made a vow. So he probably made a short-term Nazarite vow. And and we see others in the Old Testament making Nazarite vows. And we see Samuel, and he is a Nazarite for life. As was, by the way, John the Baptist after him. I'll give you my son as a Nazarite, she prays. Can you hear her heart? Can you hear her pain coming out? It says in verse 12, it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving and her voice was not heard, so Eli thought she was drunk. <laughs> she's sitting over there. I don't know if she's rocking, which a lot of the, the, you know, the Hasidic Jews will do today. If you see them at the, at the wailing wall, this is how they pray. They, they move like this constantly as they're praying and they're saying the words to the Lord and they're, and they're moving. And they do that to keep themselves in the prayer, to keep themselves awake. Because they've learned like you and I that oftentimes we start into prayer and we go, Lord, I just want to... <laughs> and so they rock they move and she, she's into this and he's watching her mouth and she is so into this she's not speaking out loud but he is making an assumption she's drunk this woman's come to shy I can't believe this she's drunk and then Eli said to her how long will you make yourself drunk put away your wine from you he says and Hannah replied no no my lord I am a woman oppressed in spirit I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. I'm not taking anything in here. I'm pouring out. I'm in distress. I'm in pain. I'm in heartache. This is a devoted woman. I like Hannah. At a time when not many people, by the way, at the end of the days of the judges, not many were devoted like this. Hannah was devoted. She's praying her heart out. Hannah's lips were moving, but she was misunderstood. She's praying, but Eli assumes she was drunk. What's going on here? Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Have you ever groaned in prayer? I know some of you have. I know especially some of you have gone through extremely difficult times have grown in prayer 
And the Spirit functions in those groanings. And the Spirit Himself groans in ways that words can't even express. Paul says, He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, which just blows my mind. It doesn't say that the Spirit is interceding in our hearts. It says, He who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, who is already in your heart, groaning, the way God functions is so mind-boggling, so far beyond us. We say the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There we go. God in a box. Easy. Take him home with you. That's not... God is huge. The way He interacts and functions and moves and lives and breathes within us is incredible. And we see this, and, and Paul says, this is how the Spirit works. And I believe the Spirit was at work in Hannah, drawing her to the Lord. I believe Hannah is praying in the Spirit. Does Hannah's prayer and Eli's response to her prayer ring another bell of another story in Scripture? Possibly the day of Pentecost? When the apostles were speaking... Well, let me read it to you. Acts chapter 2, verse 11. The people said, We hear them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. They were worshiping. They were praising God. And as they were praising, people from all different areas are hearing in their own languages. And it says, all, they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? I'll tell you what it means. It's Pentecost. It's harvest time. That's what this means. But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. Just like Eli looking ahead and going, she's got to be drunk. So the people were looking at the apostles filled with the Holy Spirit and saying, they're drunk. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. Which I always think is really funny that he adds that little line in there. I mean, if it was, you know, the ninth hour, the tenth hour, maybe we'd be drunk. But not now. It's only the third hour. But this was what was spoken through the prophet Joel. The comparison is interesting to me because back in 1 Samuel, Hannah is pouring out her soul, heart and soul, to the Lord. She's in the Spirit, but Hannah is fully in control of herself. Eli says, you're drunk, and Hannah immediately expresses powerfully exactly where she is. No, I'm not filled with wine. I am pouring out my heart. She has full composure. Though she is praying, I believe, in the Spirit. We look back at Peter and the apostles praying in the Spirit. Wow, they are praising God and they are speaking out, speaking in tongues. And all the people are standing around looking and some say they're drunk. And immediately, Peter, in full composure, gives them one of the most powerful sermons ever preached. Articulate and eloquent. Not ecstatic and emotionally disjointed, uh, you know. Not taken over so that he had no control of himself. Peter launches into one of the most eloquent spirit-breathed sermons in all of Scripture, Acts 2.17. He says, it shall be in the last days. Let me explain to you what's going on. Let me help you understand. God says, I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall, shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even in my body, which is why I want to still see visions, by the way. Because your old men dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now listen carefully. Paul, himself inspired by the Holy Spirit, had this to say, and it's in 1 Corinthians 14. You can turn there. I'm going to go ahead and read this. But 1 Corinthians 14, 14, Paul said the following. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind 
is unfruitful. What's he talking about? See, there's a couple of different indications in Scripture when it comes to praying in tongues or speaking in tongues. One is speaking in tongues, glossolalia, which is what was happening in Acts chapter 2 on the day of the church, Pentecost. They were speaking languages that were understandable in different cultures. A powerful gift of the Spirit. This is not what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 14. Because Paul says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. I have no idea what I'm saying. I'm not speaking necessarily even in an intelligible language. He says, what's the outcome? I will pray with the Spirit. And I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit. Did you know you can sing in tongues? (laughs) You can sing in the Spirit? Some of the songs that we worship with are written that way. Singing in the Spirit. Paul says... I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted or someone who hasn't been filled with the Holy Spirit, how will they say amen at your giving of thanks as he doesn't know what you're saying? You could be praying in a tongue and you finish and they're going, I don't know, you're done now? Amen. Okay. I don't know. But I don't think I want to go back to this church. He says, you're giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not edified. I thank God, Paul says, that I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind, so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Praying in tongues, speaking in tongues, is not a bad thing, Paul says, but it's... It's personally edifying. And it's what you do. It's it's praying in the Spirit. We'll talk more about that in in coming weeks as we look at the prophets. But Paul says further down in 1 Corinthians 14.32, he says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Because God's not a God of confusion. He's a God of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. That means, and listen to me, that means that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Paul is saying the Holy Spirit doesn't just come on you and you go into a trance and you're out of control and you don't know what you're saying. Any more than Hannah didn't know what she was saying. She knew exactly what she was praying. And she expressed it beautifully. Peter understood what was going on. He expressed it beautifully. 1 Corinthians 14.39 Paul says, Therefore, my brethren, earnestly desire to prophesy. This is, this is biblical. Okay, Desire this. And do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Then he describes how you go about that. And that's, by the way, when I said earlier, lab on Wednesday night. Oh, really? I've been coming here for teaching. Now all of a sudden we're going to be doing all this weird stuff out here. No, you did not hear what we just read. What we just said. It's not about being all whacked out. It is, however, about allowing the Holy Spirit freedom to teach us how to minister to each other. That's what I want to see. The real work of the Spirit, not strange fire. The real work of the Holy Spirit among us. Don't you want to see that? I mean, we read about God's Spirit all the time. Don't, don't you want to know that He's active and alive and working through us and among us? The Bible says He is. So Paul finishes up and says, All things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. I point this out because being in the Spirit has never been about being out of control. 
In fact, I would say you are never more in control than when you are walking with the Spirit. You're in the control of the Spirit. And He knows better than you and better than me where we need to go. So Hannah is pouring her heart out to the Lord. In verse 16 going on, she says, Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman. That's, that's her sense of herself. Worthless. Oh, don't look at me as worthless. But she says, I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. And you might say, oh yeah, provocation because Penina has been provoking her. No. Literally there, the, the phrase provocation is, I have spoken out of my great concern and my provocation. I have provoked myself. I love this about Hannah. She doesn't blame Penina for the problem. She doesn't blame Elkanah for the problem. She says, I'm provoking myself to prayer. I am myself of great concern here. I have spoken out of my provocation. This is my problem, my concern, my issue that I'm taking before the Lord. Verse 17, then Eli answered and said, go in peace. Watch what he says. And may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor or grace or hana in your sight. So the woman went away and ate. And her face was no longer sad. Why was her face no longer sad? Was she instantaneously pregnant? No. Did she have a baby suddenly? No. Did Eli even tell her she was going to have a baby? Look at what he said. May the God of Israel grant your petition. I almost did it. I could be wrong about this. And God forgive me if I am. And Eli, I apologize someday if I you know, have a conversation with him. But I kind of think Eli's hedging his bet. Eli doesn't say, you poured your heart out to God, daughter. You are a child of Israel. He's going to give you a son. No, Eli doesn't. Eli says... May the God of Israel grant your petition that you've asked of him. And I almost can get the sense of Eli looking over his shoulder going, <laughs> Bummer for her. I don't think it's going to happen. But, you know, may God grant you. But Hannah goes away happy. Why? Nothing's changed. Except for one thing. Her faith. Hannah suddenly has faith. And her faith didn't come from Eli. He did nothing to give her faith. Her faith came from believing prayer. Hannah is praying. And suddenly in this place of prayer, something changes inside of Hannah. The Spirit begins to move inside of Hannah and she begins to realize, I am being heard here. God is responding. There's no physical evidence whatsoever. No proof at all. But she walks out of there with a little hitch in her giddy up. <laughs> She's a little happier. She's got a joy. Amazing. All she did was pray, but this is the result of believing prayer. God hadn't yet done anything, but Hannah had finally given it to him after all these years. She gave it to him. Isaiah 40, verse 31, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. You know the verse. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. What is that talking about? Believing prayer. A prayer offered in faith. Not necessarily faith that you're going to get what you ask for, but faith that God has heard you and God is at work. And God is doing what God does so wonderfully. Mark 11:24. Jesus said, I say to you, all the things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them Listen, and they will be granted to you. Really? 
Of course, of course, of course, of course, of course. No, believe that you have received them. Believe that God heard you and that He is a God who works out all things together for good for those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose. Verse 19, Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped, which is great. I really like that. Morning worship is a great way to start the day. They were, arose early in the morning, worshipped before the Lord, and returned again to their house in Rama, Ramallah. And Elkanah had relations with, his, with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Had he forgotten? Was it all of a sudden, oh, oh yeah, Hannah, right, right. I was going to give her a child four years ago. <laughs> I've just been so busy. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, God says, Isaiah 49, 15, but I will not forget you. The word remember in verse 19 is the car in the Hebrew. It means to be mindful of. I really like that. In other words, the Lord was mindful of her. He couldn't take his eyes off her. She was so in his thoughts. The Lord remembered her. That's a wonderful thought. That the Lord might have a mind full of you. Full of me. And you might have thoughts full of us. Wow. Verse 20, it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel. Samuel is the name saying because I have asked him of the Lord. The name Samuel means asked of God. Asked of God. Think about it. This was at least nine months, at least nine months, nine plus months, however long it took them to get home from Shiloh and then for, you know, Elkanah to go in to his wife. Whenever that was, the next night, a week, two I don't know. But we know it was at least nine months later now that Hannah gives birth and names the child Samuel, Samuel, asked of God because Hannah remembered her prayer. God remembered Hannah and gave in this conception, made it possible for her to conceive. Hannah, almost a year later, remembers what she had prayed for. I asked of God, now I have a son, so I'm going to name him Asked of God. He's my little testimony. He's my little witness that I went to God in prayer. And let me say this, I think one of our biggest problems with prayer is forgetfulness. We pray something and we forget we prayed it. And so when the Lord responds to it, we've already long forgotten it, so we don't praise Him because we don't even know that He's answered the prayer we prayed nine months ago or nine years ago. Which is, by the way, why it's a great idea to jot things down in a prayer journal. Track what you ask. It's funny because we forget God does not. We ask something here and then five years later as the Lord is working that out, suddenly we're asking for something that's totally contradictory to what we asked because we forgot what we asked. And the Lord's got to be out there sometimes just going, you little nuts. You, don't you, you ask for this and now you're asking for this and He's working together all things for good for those who love Him. But I don't think we make it easy on Him. Because we forget what we ask for. And because we forget, we don't pause to thank Him. And because we don't pause to thank Him, we miss out. You know that there's a book that just came out called Thanks, The the New Science of Gratitude, I think is the title. Just heard about this the other day by Dr. Robert Emmons. Eight years of research to discover 
that gratitude is good for you. <laughs> the word that you have in your laps told us that a long time ago. He discovered that gratitude actually has physical value. That more thankful, grateful people have lower heart rates. Are emotionally more stable. Have better relationships. I read about this book, looked at Amazon.com, and I'm looking at this book going... We are such a foolish, crazy people. It's 2007, and in 6,000 years plus of the Earth's existence and, and Western civilization, all that we've achieved, we have just now figured out to thank people. It's incredible what gratitude truly does. And the Bible tells us clearly. And we see it in Hannah. This gratefulness. Oh, thank you, Lord. Asked of God. The Lord remembered Hannah, but Hannah remembered the Lord. She remembered her prayer. Now, there's no doubt that Hannah had prayed about this a lot. But now God finally chooses to answer her. And I have to ask the question, why? Why now? The Bible tells us year after year after year, verse 7, she went up to the house of the Lord, Penina provoking her. She's praying, provoking, praying, provoking, praying, year after year after year. And you may have been in that place. You may recognize that man. I keep asking. Satan keeps provoking me. Keeps saying, God's not listening. Didn't you ask for this last month? Haven't you been praying for this for a long time? Our, our sense of timing, by the way, is a little bit off. I have prayed so long about this issue. Really, how long? Well, since last Saturday, but it's been a lot of prayer. It's 40 years from when God called Moses to when Moses came back to lead the people of Israel out of the land. 40 years. That's long-term prayer. And this has been going on and on and on. And finally now, suddenly God decides that he's going to answer her request. Why? Look back at verse 10. She's greatly distressed. She prays to the Lord. She weeps bitterly. Verse 11. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall not come on his head. What's going on? Year after year, Hannah is praying, God, give me a son. Lord, give me a son that I can give to my husband. Penina's got lots of kids. Could I just have one so that I can give something of value of worth to my husband? She wanted a son for her husband. God needed a prophet for a nation. Her prayer was small-minded, gang, as so often our prayers are. It's not that we don't pray enough, it's that we don't pray big enough. Get the picture in your mind of, of, of George Bailey looking for a suitcase. And he says, I want a big one. You know, that stop action in A Wonderful Life. If you haven't seen it, see it this Christmas. But it's that stop action scene where it stops and the angels are talking up there and they look at George Bailey and Clarence the angel says, oh, I like George Bailey. And he's standing there, you know, Jimmy Stewart with that, you know, goofy look on his face. I want a big one. And God is saying to you, I love your prayers, but they're so little. I can do so much more. You want a son, Hannah. I want to bring up a prophet. I want someone who's going to serve the whole nation, not just your husband. God's plans are always bigger than our prayers. Remember that. His plans are bigger than our prayers. I could never have conceived three and a half years ago a fellowship of this size here. To my shame, 
I wouldn't have thought that. My prayer was just that God would show us what to do next. (laughs) And allow us opportunity for a little gathering, a little church to be up here on North Whitby. His plans are always bigger than our prayers. And by the way, where the bridge is concerned, they are bigger yet. They are bigger yet. Ephesians 3.20 tells us God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. More than you're thinking. Pray big. Jeremiah 29.11 The Lord says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. When will God, when will God listen to me? When I get in alignment with Him. When I begin to pray His will. When I begin to think the way He does. Why did did God wait so many years to respond to Hannah's prayer? Because He was waiting for her to get aligned. And at the point finally where Hannah says, Okay, give me a son that I can give to you. God says, Now you're talking. Now you're talking. Now we can do some incredible things. Some exciting things. Prayer is not getting God to do what I think. It's getting me to think like God does. So Lord, we pray that you help us to think like you do. And we pray that you open our minds to the possibilities and to the things that you have in mind and you have in store for this fellowship. Yes, Lord, for each of us individually. Yes, Father. And for your kingdom, which, Lord, I believe we have yet to even begin to catch a glimpse of. Help us pray big and think big. In Jesus' name, amen. C.S. Lewis said, I don't pray to change God, I pray to change me. It's a good thought. So prayer aligns us with the Father, gets us in harmony with the Lord, and now finally Hannah is in harmony with God's plan. Hannah had a problem, and Hannah prays. Some of you might say, well, that still seems a little cruel, making Hannah go through all that just so she gets aligned with God. Is that fair? Poor Hannah. Think about the nights of anguish and the despair as she didn't know what the plan was. She ached over it. It's kind of cruel and heartless to Hannah. Don't forget this, we've said it before. The Lord is not as concerned about our earthly comfort as He is about our eternal condition. And you may not get what you think you need or want in this life. God is working out something for eternity far better than anything we can ask or imagine on this little planet Remember that. So Hannah's got a problem. She prays, which changes everything. And we come to number three in our little outline here. Hannah's promise. Verse 21. Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer up to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Verse 23, what she's saying is, until he's old enough, I, I, you know, I'm nursing him now, we're not going to make the trip to Shiloh, I'm staying home, I'm nursing him. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him, only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And there's some good husbanding going on here on the part of Elkanah. A couple of things just to note about his attitude toward his wife. Number one is he respects his wife. You do what seems best to you. Put the baby in the car. We're going to Shiloh. For crying out loud, 
work, woman. Can't you get it together? I've been out working all day long. I come home. All you've got is this one little child. And we got to go to worship. Let's move. <laughs> he respects her. Oh, you're not... Okay, I'm going down, Shiloh. You're staying home? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm nursing little Samuel. He needs more time. He needs, he needs more motherly care. He doesn't need a big trip right now. Okay. Well, you do what seems best to you. He respects her. But he also reminds her, may the Lord confirm his word. I respect your decision to stay home with little Samuel, but don't forget the promise that we made. Don't forget the connection that was made with the Lord over this child. Literally, and I like the way the King James translates this, it's not may the Lord confirm his word, it's Hannah, the Lord established his word. The Lord established his word. You stay home and nurse little Sam. But allow the Lord to establish his word. This boy has more than what we're going to give him here at home. I like that about Elkanah. He's coming around. That's good biblical leadership in the home. Respect coupled with a reminder of the will of God. That's a husband who respects his wife, but is also willing to lead. And say, honey... You do what you need to do with the kids, but remember, God is first and foremost. May He establish His Word in this household, in this family. Verse 24. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a jug of wine. That, by the way, there's some cool imagery there. A three-year-old meat and, and bread and wine. And the bread and the wine of, of communion and meat, the, the Word, I, I just... I don't know, see that there? And brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. How young was Samuel at the time of his weaning? Probably around the age of three. At the point where she no longer needed to nurse him. So probably about three years old when Hannah, the mother who had prayed her heart out to the Lord, a three-year-old child. Ladies, you have a three-year-old son. Are you? Is it so easy to give that child up? How easy would that be? We're going to take them down to Shiloh and say goodbye. Moms have an incredibly hard time just seeing their kids off to college. <laughs> and that's after all the stuff they've done that would make you think they'd want to send their kids off to college. Three years old. Verse 25 says, And they slaughtered the bull. They brought the boy to Eli. So they give the sacrifice. This is all connected to the Nazarite vow. Brought the boy to Eli. And, and she said, verse 26, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I'm the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. Verse 27, For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. Hannah's prayer has now turned into her witness. This boy is my testimony that God hears. This boy, he's the testimony in my life. Your life may be the testimony of someone else's prayer. The fact that you walk with Jesus, lessons shared before. His mother and others were praying like crazy for him. His life is the testimony, the proof of the prayer. And that's what she's saying about Samuel. Look, I, I prayed. I'm the one. Remember you thought I was drunk and you were so off? You sat there on your stool judging me? Um, <laughs> you were off. And here's the proof that God hears. Verse 28, So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. And that word dedicated is a cool word. It literally means lent or returned. So I have also lent him to the Lord. I, I, I've returned. God, you gave me a child like 
You said you would. Like I knew you would. And here I am. Like I promised, Hannah's promise, I'm giving him back to you. And it tells us that he worshipped the Lord there. Not Elkanah, not Hannah, but Eli worshipped the Lord there. Why did Eli worship the Lord? Because he saw the testimony of God at work in another believer's life. It's a good reason for worship, isn't it? Hannah's promise is now Hannah's testimony. Do you remember your vows? Do you remember your commitments that you've made to the Lord over the years? I, it, it kind of frightens me a little bit to even think of going back and asking the Lord, asking the Lord to show me all of my commitments that I made, my promises. If I, I'll do this, Lord. If you do this, I'll make sure I'll, I'll do all these things. And I imagine it's so long, and I'll probably look at that list someday and go, <laughs> sorry about that one. <laughs> And missed it there too. Boy. There's I, I did this. I did this, Lord. Remember this one? You know, 157. I did that one. 158 now. 59 now. Do we keep our vows? Jesus said, be careful what you vow. Let your less, yes be yes and your no be no. Don't get too crazy about making vows, but if you do, keep it. Keep your commitments to the Lord. Well, this godly woman had a problem. She prayed. She kept her promise to the Lord. And the end result is a great prophet, the prophet Samuel. And we'll see more of his life coming up here. Next week, we'll get into another prayer of Hannah, which, by the way, go ahead. I'm going to give you homework. Read this this week. Just read Hannah's prayer for Samuel chapter 2. It's about the first half of the chapter. Read through that a few times. And listen to the words of Hannah because it's, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful prayer. There's something very, very human about the prayer, but also something very godly in the way she approaches the Lord. And as we learn more of prayer in the book of 1 Samuel, you're going to see something here with Hannah. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you so much for taking us into a new season and a a new book. And new things. Your word says that uh, the Lord is doing a new thing. And I pray that you will among us. You'll take us deeper than we have been before. As a fellowship, you'll lead us into a more wonderful place. Though where we've been has been great, Father. Lead us into a more wonderful place where you are, are glorified in ways we have yet to glorify you. I pray that you will lead us each individually into a new place of faith and and commitment and trust. We'll learn how to remember our prayers. How, Lord, to pray in your spirit. How to entrust our lives to you in in much the same way we see Hannah doing. And Father, I want to close tonight just by praying for the problems that, that we each bring to bear. Not many of us raised our hands earlier to be prayed for. And yet the reality, Lord, is that each one of us need to be prayed for. So, Father, you you know our problems, you know our struggles, you know the groanings of our hearts. We offer them before you now. And ask that you will hear us. And ask, Father, that you will respond as you align us to that perfect place of your will. Go with us now, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.